Good morning, good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Pedro Reese, and I'm the lead pastor here at City Life. But today, I have the distinct honor of not preaching for us, because there's someone here who I trust way more. Uh, he happens to be my boss, but way more than that, uh, today, I like. it's my joy to welcome up Kelvin Walker. Kelvin, if you could join us here real quick. Kelvin is our district superintendent, and so he's the one who watches over all the churches in our district. Are we the biggest district? One of them, right? One of the biggest. Okay. Uh, and so, Kelvin, I've, we talked on the phone this week, and we were talking about how I've known Kelvin for just about 10 years. And throughout those 10 years, I, I first met him when I was doing sound for him at our seminary's chapel. And so I got to know him there as just like some, a nobody who did sound. And Kelvin was always like, I love Kelvin and I believe in him so much because I just see the type of person that he is and the follower of Christ that he is. And so like, it is one of my utmost joy in my professional career and personal career to be, have him as someone who speaks vision over me and like watches over my job and our district and the course of our church. And so... Kelvin, uh, thank you for being here. We welcome you here. Everyone, let's give it up for Kelvin one more time. And after all that, I was like, who's he talking about? <laughs> City Life, it's good to be with you this morning. We were trying to figure out uh, the last time I was here. It was December 2019. That's a long time ago. Um, but I'm so glad to be with you this morning to bring God's word to you, um, to look into uh, what it is that God has to say about us as his people. Will you join me in prayer and then we will begin our time in the word. Lord, I can't help but think of the words of the song uh, from Come Thou Fount. Oh, to grace, how great a debt or daily I'm constrained to be. Let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. We are so thankful, Lord, that when we are people, we are people who are prone to wander, but we are so thankful that you are the God who pursues us. You are the God who calls us by name. You are the God who draws us back to you. As we look in your word today, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes so that we would see. Open our ears that we would hear. Open our hearts so that we can receive. And open our wills so that we would respond. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your favor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Every day, our naming of the people that we come in contact with either gives life or takes it away. Let me say that again. Every day, our naming of the people around us, the people that we come in contact with, either gives life or takes it away. I'm going to ask you to just let that sink in for just a second. But the things that we say or the things that are said to us, the names that we put on people, or the names that are put on us, either gives life 
or takes it away. There exists in the world today well over 100 million, maybe somewhere between 160 and 200 million people known as Dalits or untouchables. They're considered untouchable because they perform the most menial tasks in society and, and the rule of the system says that Dalits, by their mere presence, um, pollute those who are of a caste rank that's higher. In a recent article I read said this, Dalits continue to remain the most underprivileged class. The stigma they face remains evident to this day. Dalits continue to survive under inhumane and degrading Conditions And although uh, there are Dalits who have just uh, started to rise up and to say, hey, listen, uh, this is unjust, this is inhumane, uh, there are rights that we deserve. Though that's happening, Dalits still feel in, uh, dehumanized and treated like exiles in their own country. Not just because of their caste, but also by the derogatory names that they're often called and the labels that are put on them. Ugly. Stupid. Worthless. Now I can imagine what it would be like to have names that are uh, like that spoken over me on on daily day and on a daily basis. Wounding names, marking names, names that leave an imprint and and ultimately lead to death and destruction of my personhood because I know there's nothing I can do to escape the caste into which I was born. Every day, our naming of those around us either gives life or takes it away. I wonder this morning how many of us inwardly feel like Dalits. Outwardly, we look good. Uh, we covered ourselves well. It took me, uh, you know, a little bit this morning to make sure I put the right shirt on. And, you know, I decided I'm going to wear jeans and pick the right shoes to go with my jacket, which I decided not to wear because it's a little warm in here. You know, so outwardly, I can put it together. Outwardly, we can put everything together. We can cover ourselves up well. We can dress nice. We can smile. We can crack jokes and, and look like the life of the party. But inwardly, we're wounded, exiled emotionally. We're marked. And our sense of personhood has been destroyed because of the names and the labels that have been spoken over us. Truthfully, though, if we think about it, the labels that, that are thrust upon us by someone else really don't have power to take life from us. Those labels are just mere words. Because you see, through Christ, and what he has accomplished on the cross, we can walk as those who have acceptance. We can walk as those who have received affection. We can walk as those who have affirmation from God the Father. Mark Laberton, the, uh, the, um, the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, puts it this way. In Jesus, God has come. And he's come with power to rename us. He's come with the kind of power that says, even though people might put labels on you, because of Jesus, we have acceptance, affection, and we are loved by the Father, and he calls us by name. There is power in what Jesus has done on the cross to rename us. We know this to be true, at least intellectually. We know this to be true, at least theologically. We know this to be true as we look at it and we accept what the Bible says as true. But unfortunately, the real tragedy comes when we lose sight of that truth. 
And when we lose sight of that truth, we begin to identify ourselves by the names of death spoken over us. I want to submit to you this morning that the person who said, Stick and, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, might need to have themselves hit upside the head with sticks or stones. Because the truth of the matter is, names do hurt. They do sting. But life is stripped away from us only when we choose to wear those labels that others put on us as if they represent our true selves. Labels uh, that find us walking around saying things of ourselves, I'm worthless, I'm an idiot, I'll never amount to anything. We may have heard those things, but they take root when we accept those things as truth and speak them over ourselves. Maybe somehow I'm going to name like this, I'm damaged goods and no one would ever want me. Outwardly, we may be functioning as if everything is okay, but inwardly, these labels trick us into believing that we're shackled to a spiritual caste system out of which we will never emerge. I was talking to my wife, Donnie, about this, and she succinctly put it this way. When we choose to own the labels thrust upon us by others, we also choose to live out the legacy of that label. When we choose to own the names thrust upon us by others, we also choose to live out the legacy of that label. Well, Kelvin, this morning, if the words of death and destruction uh, that are spoken over me, uh, how, you know, they, how do I keep from letting them be shackles around my soul? What, what are the words of life that I need in order to counteract the spiritual caste that seeks to strip me of my worth and of my dignity? How many of you know the story of, uh, of Snow White? Uh, you know, she's got this, um, this, uh, this wicked stepmother who every day would go to the mirror and she'd go mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest one of all? And she didn't want to hear what the mirror actually had to say because when the mirror said the truth, uh, she got really upset. What she wanted to hear was that she was the fairest one of all. And so she wanted that mirror to lie to her. She wanted the mirror to speak things that weren't true so that she could feel better about herself. And so as I'm Look, thinking about that and I'm thinking about my own life and as how I look through things like uh, that through the words of bondage I, I don't want to be like uh, Snow White's uh, wicked stepmother I want to know the truth I want the truth to be reflected in me I'm not going to go mirror mirror on the wall who's the fairest one of all I'm going to go mirror mirror in my hand tell me where my identity stands because I know when I do that I'll find the truth of who I am. Apostle Peter, help us please. Because sometimes we feel like the least of these. And it's into this that Peter speaks. In his epistle, Peter's addressing a group of people who live in the Greco-Roman society but have no rights whatsoever because they're not Roman citizens. You only became a Roman citizen one of two ways by birth or by serious connection to someone really high up who had the kind of authority and the kind of influence in government that could make that happen for you. These people couldn't just melt into society. They stood out. They were what I call tweeners. Gentiles caught somewhere between being a Roman citizen and, and, and a slave. They were, they were considered the Dalits of the Greco-Roman world, if you will, stuck into a caste with no hope of gaining any privileges 
or any rights. And the only place that they were, they were living in a land where there was no hope and they were, they were not feeling accepted anywhere in the place. And the only way, only way they found acceptance was through the church that was located throughout Asia Minor at the time. The term exile that Peter uses to open up his epistle uh, in, his, in his greeting wasn't just a, me- a metaphorical in nature. Some, might, some commentators might suggest that, that it's just a metaphor. It didn't just refer to earthly saints waiting for their heavenly home. No, Peter, in a very real sense, was addressing exiles, people who were homeless, people who had no identity, people who felt left out. They didn't know what to do. Their identity had been stripped and outside of the church in Asia Minor, which they weren't always connected to because of where they were located, they felt exiled. So the first thing he does is he exhorts them to desire the word of God. He directs them right to God's word. The second thing that he does is he encourages them to build themselves up as a spiritual house, to see themselves as living stones connected to the living stone. And then uh, as they were doing that, he warns them not to be as those who disobey the message. Hold on to the truth. Don't let the labels that were speaking, spoken over you and the way that you feel cause you to act in ways that are disobedient to what you know the word of God says. He reminds them that they are different. And through that, he reminds us that as followers of Jesus, we are different. And this is how he labels, if you will, those who were exiled in the Greco-Roman world. For you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. For you are chosen people. I love the version that I grew up memorizing. It says it this way, for you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you will show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you want to wear a label, let this label be yours. Chosen Peculiar, royal, belonging. Now you are the people of God. We'll look at it. Mirror, mirror, in my hand. Where does my identity stand? Take a look in the mirror, my friend. And upon first gaze, you will see this, the reflection of your heritage. Reflection of your heritage. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Many scholars have suggested that the wording of the New American Standard is the best translation. A people for God's own possession. A people for God's own possession. Which is why uh, there have been uh, uh, translations that have been updated that says God's chosen 
possession. Not just for God's own possession, but God's chosen possession. See, the value of an item is really determined by the prestige of the person who possesses it. And Peter reminds this group of believers that their true value outweighs the death sentence of the labels being fostered them on them as exiles in a foreign land because the God who possesses them deems them priceless. They're priceless. The question arises is this. What's significant about the language that Peter used here? Why did Peter choose that wording, chosen, royal priesthood, People belonging to God, God's special possession. He seems to reemphasize this language again in verse 10 when he says, now you are the people of God. Friends, this is the language of covenant. He's reminding them of Exodus chapter 19, when the Israelites were right at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God's beginning to talk to, to Moses about his people. It's just before God's going to give the Ten Commandments for them to follow. And God says to Moses, I want you to let my people know if they obey what I lay out, if they follow what I say, if they find their identity, in essence, in me and what I'm calling them to do and who I'm calling them to be, then they will be my chosen possession. My treasured possession, actually, is what's said. That's what God prophesied. And now Peter's reminding the church, this has been fulfilled in Christ. You are God's treasured possession. And since Christ has torn down this barrier, and now there is neither Jew nor Gentile or slave nor free or male nor free male, there remains one people united by the blood of Christ, God's treasured possession. Peter encouraged these believers to join him in, in, in sharing their, 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 their uh, possession and their, their heritage in Christ. My wife and I lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for 12 years. My kids started school there. They made their most significant friendships of that, of that time in their lives in Pittsburgh. Some of them still have friendships that, uh, that they've had since they were uh, kids. And the school system in Pittsburgh had this lottery where you could put your name in and you had to meet certain requirements because they wanted to make sure that every, every school got the best education possible, that every school represented the, the diversity of the neighborhoods in which uh, the schools were located, that every person who wanted to get into one of these schools uh, would have the opportunity to get them. And they were all categorized by different things. And we wanted to get our kids in the, in the charter school line. And my wife went and my son Tyler was about to go into kindergarten. So she signed him up. And here's the other thing. Once one kid got into this, to this lottery system, then all of the siblings were able to get in without reapplying. So my wife went, signed my son uh, Tyler up and got, got, tried to get him into a lottery. That was right near where we lived. It was great. She came home and she said, hey, Kelvin, take the paperwork and put it somewhere where it would be safe. And uh, that way we know if there was a question, here's the paperwork, here's a copy of the paperwork, this is what we filled out. And I'm looking through it, and all of a sudden, it kind of looked like this. 
I get upset. And I go to my wife and I say, hey, Donnie, you lied. Side note, don't ever start a conversation off like that. <laughs> okay? So she looks at me and she's calmly asking me, what do you mean I lied? I said, where it puts down here race and ethnicity, you put biracial. And she said, yeah. I'm going, babe, I want our kids to get into a good school system, but I'm not willing to lie for that to happen. I, I, and the whole time I'm saying this, she's just looking at me and she's smiling. Just smiling. And I should have known she was waiting for me to shut up because she was going to tell me what. And when I did shut up, she looked at me and she said, Kelvin, what's my maiden name? What do you mean, what's your maiden name? Your maiden name is, then it hit me. Her maiden name is Vargas. My wife is West Indian and Puerto Rican. My kids, as I look at my own heritage, there are things in my heritage that make my children multiracial. And so when she checked that box, she wasn't lying. I was so focused on what the label of my skin tone represented that I had forgotten my heritage. Now, here's my wife who was never allowed to identify with other parts of her heritage when she was growing up, but she never forgot her heritage. The labels put on us can cause us to forget our heritage. Let me ask you this morning, have you forgotten your heritage? Has someone else's label attached, gotten attached to you like that, that, that thing on the back, like there's a big kick me sign on the back? It's time for us to take a look at reflection in the mirror, my friends, because the mirror doesn't lie. Your heritage declares that you are a man or you are a woman of God for God's own possession. And that makes you priceless. Would you repeat this after me? I am a person for God's own possession. And that makes me priceless. Let's say that again. I'm a person for God's own possession. And that makes me priceless. But there's more, my friend. The mirror doesn't just give you a reflection of your heritage. Mirror, mirror in my hand, where does my identity stand? Take a look in the mirror, my friend, because there you will see the restoration of your true brilliance. Not just the reminder of your heritage, but the restoration of your true brilliance. Verse 9, you are a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That phrase, declare the praises, uh, is often interpreted through the, just through the lens of worship. And that's true. But actually the word, the word praise is translated best here as witness or deeds. So if I may, I'd like to suggest maybe a paraphrase of this. You are people belonging to God that you may brilliantly shine forth the affirmed witness of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You brilliantly shine forth the affirmed witness of him. What does that witness look like? Coming to a place where we not only understand, but we embrace and walk in the fact that we are image bearers. 
that we bear the image of our creator. When we stand secure in our heritage, then we also stand affirmed in our identity. And we don't have to say a word. The truth of who we are will shine forth and everyone will come in, that we come in contact will see the affirmation that we receive from the Father about being his priceless possession. When we understand our, our brilliance, then we are set to hear the words that the Father spoke over Jesus and that he speaks over us. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased because we bear his image. We bear his image. In addition, the affirmation of our identity in him will act as a shield around us. Doesn't mean that labels won't come at us that are not of him, but it acts as a shield around us. And it's like, like, like a handball hitting a brick wall and just bouncing back off. This is what I think maybe uh, David was getting at when he was in a troubled state and it felt like everybody's pressing in on him, everybody's crushing in on him, everybody's saying things about him that are destroying him and he's hiding out and he says, many of they increase that trouble me, many of they that rise up against me, many of they would say of my soul there's no help for him in God and then these words in Psalm 3 but thou, O Lord are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. I brilliantly shine forth, at least I think so, when I'm doing something creative or something artistic, something along those lines. My brilliance was stripped of me or I allowed it to be stripped of me in sixth grade. This kid who I won't name would walk by me, I still remember it, Mrs. Singer's sixth period English class, right after lunch, and we're standing outside the door. And I don't know why he chose to do this. The only thing that I can think of is that I was more creative and less uh, athletic, and so everything I did was in the arts or in music. Um, this particular week, as I'm standing there, friends around me having conversations, Billy would walk by me and it went on for a week and to this day I could count down and hear those words three two one and the tirade would go now I'm not going to mention the things that he said but I can tell you this they really attacked my identity and as a sixth grade boy trying to figure out who you are anyway this just made it worse. So for a while, I stopped. Gave up photography. Gave up pursuing art. The only thing I held on to was singing, learned to play the piano, because in church, that's what young people did. When I was growing up, you were in the youth choir, and you, you, you got involved in music. And so I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't give that up. Plus, I also took up guitar, because, you know, you could play guitar and be all right. That went on for a long time. It wasn't until I was in my 41st year of living that I found healing from that. The late Brendan Manning came to Nyack College, I was campus pastor. 
And he did something that I will never forget. At the end of his message, he said, I believe Jesus is here and wants to heal someone from wounds. He just invited us to close our eyes. And then he said, Jesus, would you show them where you want to heal them? Instantly. I was in that hallway in front of Mrs. Singer's class. And Billy was there. I just mentioned his name. Anyway, the kid's name. He's there. And he's going on and on. And then Brenda Manning just said, Jesus, could you show them where you are? And I'll never forget, Jesus was there. And the words he spoke over me brought healing to my soul. I remember sharing that with the class that I was in. And someone in the class at the end of the night dropped by my house before I got there. And in this bag were all of these paints and canvases and art supplies. And the only thing the note said was, paint away, shine forth. How many of you have let God Word, God's words be blocked because someone has stolen your brilliance by the things that they said. When our heritage is secure, our purpose and our brilliance shines forth. Are you willing to surrender those labels that have been spoken over you today so that you can receive the truth of who you are in Christ and let the brilliance that God has made in you be reclaimed. Would you, would you say this after me? When I reflect my true heritage, God's restored brilliance will shine forth in my life. Say that one more time. When I reflect my true heritage, God's restored brilliance will shine forth in my life. The mirror shows us a reflection of our heritage. The mirror restores our true brilliance. But there's one more reflection I see here. Mirror, mirror in my hand, where does my identity stand? Take a look in the mirror, my friends. For there you will see the reminder of your redemption. The reminder of your redemption. Peter reminds these homeless Gentiles that since they are now connected to the chief cornerstone, who is Jesus himself, they now belong to his society. And they are not exiles any longer. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, because of Christ's work on the cross, you now have significance. Your life now has meaning and you have a home. You have a home. You've received God's mercy, that undeserved, unearned, unwarranted favor of God just because he loves you. You have significance. 1994 was a great year for me. It was the year that the first Toy Story movie came out. I loved watching that with my kids. 
And there was that character, Woody and the other character, Buzz. Woody the, the cowboy and Buzz the toy astronaut. And Buzz believed himself to be this huge superhero uh, that could fly. And every time he wanted to fly, he would get on Woody's nerves. And, and, and he tried this one time, he's going he's to fly, and Woody just yells at him, you're not a space ranger, Buzz. You're, you're an action figure. You're a child playthrough. You're just a, you're just a toy. And Buzz was going to prove him wrong. The space ranger. So he stands on that window ledge, presses that button, wings come out, and he jumps. It's flat. He hits the ground. He finally realizes that he can't fly. And so he agrees with Woody, standing there, dejected, taking on the label, you're just a toy, you're just a toy. And Woody redeems the situation by walking up to him and saying this, hey, Buzz, you must not be thinking clearly. Look over there in that house. Uh, uh, that kid, there's a kid in there, and that kid thinks you're the greatest, not because you're a space ranger, but simply because you're his. And Buzz lifts his foot, and he looks at the bottom of his foot, and he sees a name there, Andy. He's Andy's. And from that day on, that permanent name in, in black is the name of the little boy to whom he belongs. And seeing this image breaks something in Buzz's heart and he begins to smile, and he takes on a new determination. Let me ask you, have the labels of this world left you feeling stupid, little, and insignificant? Take a look in the mirror, my friend, because the mirror doesn't lie. There you will see the permanent marker of your maker, only his marking is in red. It's written on your very heart. There you will see the seal of his precious son's blood. Not because you're a space ranger, not because you're anything else. Simply because you're his. If we're going to live as kingdom people, as I wrap this up, and if our very lives are going to reflect the kingdom living, then our identities must be grounded in who we are, as children of the king. Don't forget your heritage. Refuse to let others steal your brilliance and rejoice in the fact that your place as a kingdom person has been secured because Christ has redeemed you. And with every hammer of the nail, it was as if Jesus was saying, you belong to the Father. And as they took that cross and set it up straight, is as if Jesus, struggling to breathe, was saying, you're his beloved. And as he hung his head and died, he said, now you have your identity. And then when he rose again, it's as if he was saying, walk in it. Walk in it. Take a look in the mirror, because that tells you who you are. Walk in that. Sometime this week, I would encourage you to ask the Father this. 
What are the labels that I have taken on as if they really define me? Two, say to the Father, I'm going to reclaim my heritage. I'm going to let the brilliance of who you designed me to be shine forth. And I'm going to rejoice in the fact that you've redeemed me. Third, write those labels down. Rip them up. Throw them away. And then fourth, let these words from a song that I believe the Lord sang over me as I was going in this process sink into your heart and bring healing to your soul. I chose you for myself. Now you belong to me. I chose you for myself. So now you can be free. Free to be all I created you to be. No longer ashamed of who you are. For I chose you just for me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.